Now then, let's uh, turn to Daniel chapter 1 again. And the words of verse 8. These are important words, and we'll look at them for a, a couple of weeks. We read in verse 8 that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. So Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Now, you'll remember that this book is taking us back to 605 B.C. and taking us back to the siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, who had just become uh, king of Babylon and, at this point, the most powerful man in the world. Uh, We've seen how he followed a policy that he would keep all his life, that's of taking away the cream of the youth in the country that he had just conquered, and his purpose is to, not just to weaken that country, but to strengthen his own, to train them in Babylon so that they will become uh, very powerful and able administrators there who will be loyal to him. And we've seen over the last couple of occasions how Babylon attempts essentially to Babylonianize these young men and to conform them to the Babylonian culture. First of all, you'll remember, uh, they gave the young men a new name. Their old names contained the name of Jehovah or God inside them. Their new names get rid of the name of Jehovah and incorporate Babylonian gods into them. We also saw the pressure of a new education, a university-level three-year course designed to teach them the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. By common consent, the Chaldean language is the hardest language to learn. It takes years to learn. And they were to learn not just that, but all the literature of the Chaldeans, which involved things like astronomy and maths too. And, um, of course, the new name was something they couldn't do all that much about. We're not told that they carried a sustained protest about it. I think I gave reasons for believing they carried on using their own names most of the time. But a name is what people give you, and if they want to call you something, so be it. With respect to the new education, they've got to accept what's good and reject what's bad. Thankfully, at this university level, Uh, They've already been grounded in the Word of God. They grew up in the time of Reformation under King Josiah. And even though in the last few years of their time in Jerusalem as young men, the nation was quickly falling away again, still they were well grounded in the truth. In any case, in captivity, they had little option but to carry through with their education. So they did what we must often do. They just accepted the good, and they rejected the bad. And they were able to do that because God was with them. Now, I want to take you this morning to the third assault that is made in them. And it's much more dangerous than the first two. A new name is one thing, a new education is something else too, but 
something altogether different is the new temptation that they were confronted with, with the king's table. The delicacies on it, as the word describes it, and the portion of wine that the king gave them. Um, the king's food. Now, I call it a temptation, not just because of what it is, but because of what it represents. Uh, the king's table would be something that they had, they had never really seen in Jerusalem. Even though they were obviously well off from high-ranking families themselves, they would never have seen a table like this. And the, the content of the king's table was a reminder to them of what was open to them and what was available to them. If they would do their work well, if they would submit to Babylonian culture and to the Babylonian king, well, the world was their oyster. They could rise high in Babylonian government and they could do whatever they wanted, really. That's why last time I said to you that the king's table was really a kind of term for the pleasures of Babylon, which itself is pretty much the same as the pleasures of Egypt that Moses was confronted with. You'll remember in that famous choice of Hebrews 11, Moses had either to choose the pleasures of Egypt, the pleasures of sin, or to choose to suffer affliction with God's people, because that's what being a Christian meant at that time. You were a slave. He had to choose between the one or the other. And that's why the portion of the king's table is called here delicacies, because there's an allusion, not just to how good the food is or how rich the food is, but to the subtlety um, of attractiveness in it all. There's something about it that's inviting them and calling them to it. Now, I think that the decision to reject the king's table was in some ways more difficult for Daniel than the decision to reject Egypt was for Moses. And uh, what I mean by that is this. Moses was confronted with that choice in a stark way at the age of 40. Now, by the age of 40, Moses was high up in Pharaoh's household. There's very good reason for believing that he was possibly heir to the throne of Pharaoh, but at 40 years of age, he knows exactly what the pleasures of Egypt are. He knows what they involve. And in some ways, it's easier to reject what you've known and what you've tasted. Unless, of course, you've got so deep in what you've known and tasted that you just can't get yourself out of it. And that happens to so many people. It may indeed be happening to you. You may have chosen to go down the world's way and to reject the way of God. And even though you, you feel sometimes that it's not quite giving you what you want, I mean, you're seduced by it. And you're seduced by it at every turn, which means that every time you have a choice to make, you keep making this way because you feel that this must contain the answer. This will give me life. This will give me happiness. But otherwise, if God comes into your life, maybe, fortunately, thankfully, maybe you're able to see that the pleasures of Egypt are not what they appear.
appear to be, and that the king's table in Babylon doesn't deliver what it seems to promise. But a younger person like Daniel can't come at it from that perspective, you see, because he hasn't really lived in Babylon. And it's so much more easy, in a way, to seduce somebody who doesn't really know, somebody who hasn't yet tasted or somebody who hasn't yet been on the other side. The devil can come to Daniel in a way that he couldn't perhaps come to Moses and say, Daniel, it's really better on the other side. Uh, Babylon can give you what Jerusalem could never, ever give you. Jerusalem's restrictive, stifling. Even though you were going to get an education there, it's not the same as the education here. And the life that you would live, well, take a look around you. There's no restrictions on you here, especially in the service of the king. It's a bit like the original temptation which came to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when the devil uh, slithered up to them and said, if you take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. Uh, You will taste what you haven't tasted yet in this life. There's something on the other side. There's a whole field of experience and pleasure and knowledge that you'll never get on this side. You've got to cross over and be masters of your own destiny. The same subtle temptation was being made to Daniel. At least Moses could say, the pleasures of Egypt are an illusion. But Daniel couldn't quite say that because he hadn't really experimented. Now, as well as that general temptation from the king's table, I mean by that that it's just seducing him into another walk of life, I want you to notice, and this is more important really, that there is a specific temptation on the king's table. There's a test on the king's table. The temptation is a temptation for them to do something explicitly wrong, that is, to eat the food and to drink the wine. Now, when you ask the question, as you're bound to ask the question, what was wrong with it? In a way, it's not that easy to answer. There's a a little bit of a debate about what's wrong with it. Some say that what was wrong with it was just that the food was rich, the wine too good, maybe too strong, and there was the danger of overindulging in it. Now, I mention that, but I want to reject it. If that was the only problem with it, Daniel could negotiate that with the Spirit of God guiding him. The Spirit of the Lord is a spirit of self-control. It's a spirit that guides us into moderation and making a proper use of things. There's nothing wrong with wine. There's something wrong with overindulging in wine, yes, but the answer to that is a moderate use. If, if, If the food was simply rich or the wine just of a very good quality, Daniel's stand was unnecessary. All he simply had to do was just eat and drink in moderation. In so doing, he would be keeping God's command. So there's no need for a stand. It's a stand for nothing. Some other people will say that what was wrong with the food was that it was dedicated to false gods. Now, it may have been... But again, although that's not good, 
There's no problem with it in terms of eating it. Paul has to make that clear to the Corinthians in the first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. There were some Christians who were being pressurized um, into not eating food that had been offered to idols. Sometimes the food that was offered to idols ended up back in shops and you could sell it. And some, some younger Christians were saying, well, you shouldn't touch that food. You shouldn't go near it because of its association with idolatry. But Paul says there's nothing wrong with the food. I mean, if the food has been consecrated to an idol, it doesn't change the food. Just eat it, he says. But, he says, if it's really giving offense to a young Christian who does not understand the issue, then Paul says, don't eat it. Certainly don't eat it in front of him or her until you've explained the situation to them and they understand that there's nothing wrong with the food. But the basic principle is that there's nothing wrong with eating the food offered to the idols. And Daniel understood that very well. He wouldn't be squeamish about eating that. He would just eat it. So what then is wrong with the king's table? Well, although there's a debate, to be honest, I don't think there needs to be one. Because it seems to me very obvious that the king's table was off limits for Daniel because it contained ingredients that were unclean. It's as simple as that. Notice that the word being used here is the word defile. At the end of verse 8, Daniel asks the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself with the king's food. In other words, the king's food is unclean. Now, this presupposes a bit of knowledge, I suppose. Uh, You'll remember that in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, God had designated certain foods that were not to be eaten. Now, it's very plain in the Bible that that was a temporary regulation. We have it lifted explicitly in the New Testament. Uh, You'll remember how, how difficult Peter found it to accept that that regulation was lifted, but it was lifted. Uh, there's no unclean food. But there was a regulation in the Old Testament designating certain foods unclean. Now, it would be interesting enough to go into the reason why they were unclean, but right now it's not our business. All that matters to us now and all that mattered to Daniel was the fact that they were unclean. Certainly it's got something to do with holiness. We know that. But the foods were unclean. As far as eating them was concerned, God had said, thou shalt not, or you shall not. In other words, the point is simply that it's against God's law to eat some of the things that were on the king's table. Now, this is a greater test for Daniel and for his friends, because up till now, the challenge was um, to resist thinking differently. He's not got to allow himself to be badgered into a different way of thinking. The new names were doing that. The new education was doing that. It was part of conditioning him to become worldly and anti-Christian in his thinking. But the pressure this time is simply to break the law of God on an explicit point. And of course, if you do that, it becomes easier to do it a second time. I want you to notice, too, I'll, I'll elaborate on this in a second, but it's worth pointing, on, pointing it out right now, 
You'll notice that the command that he has to break is not really a huge one, is it? It's not thou shalt not kill. It's not thou shalt not commit adultery or thou shalt not steal. It's equivalent to don't eat pork. But of course, if he breaks this, it'll be easier to break another one. And it'll get gradually easier to break a bigger one and to break a bigger one until at last he just becomes used to breaking the commands of God. The devil always begins with the smaller ones, really. He's clever enough to do that. He'll get you to compromise on what appears to be quite a minor thing in the word of God. He doesn't care. He's got his nose in the tent door. Once he's got his nose in, he'll get his ears in, and he'll get his shoulders in, and he'll get his behind in until he's all together inside the tent. So the test is whether he will keep God's command or not. Now, to appreciate the test, I want you to understand the pressure. I don't think you can ever appreciate the magnitude of a test unless you appreciate the pressure involved. The first pressure that I want to draw your attention to, and university students will know this very well, because that's what he is. It's a pressure from your peers. There are other young men from Judah in this university, but there are young men from other countries too. And there's always a pressure from other young people. But you'll notice that that pressure is worse when God's law is asking you to do something that other people are not doing. To do something different. I think it's easier to do what other people are not doing. For example, let's say uh, you go to church on Sunday. And let's say nobody else in, in your group or whatever goes to church on Sunday. Well, in a way that's fine, you see. They may give you stick over that for doing something that they are not doing. But really, it doesn't affect them much at all. It's just what you do, and they might just accept that. But it's a lot harder if they're doing something and you have to not do it, you see. You know yourself how much more difficult that is. So, for example, they're going to gather to do something on the Lord's Day, and you have to not do it, you see. It was so much easier to do something that they weren't doing but it gets harder when you're not to do something that they're doing. And until now, nothing that difficult has been required of them. They've got a new name, well, they can be passive. A new education, well, they can just learn it. And I didn't mention this last week, so it's worth just putting it in. Uh, There are many things that we are called upon to learn in life. And there is nothing wrong with learning them carefully. And I include uh, false religions in that. I mean, you do have to be careful how you learn them. There's no doubt about that. Uh, You have to learn them carefully, a bit like a doctor handling poison. I mean, how deadly is the stuff that a pharmacist handles unless he or she knows what to do with it? Deadly stuff. You have to study a false religion critically, In other words, you don't study it from the so-called neutral position of humanism, which is anything but neutral. There's no such thing as neutrality in the realm of spirit and morality. No such thing as neutrality. 
You must study it critically from the standpoint of Christian truth. But nonetheless, you can study it. The world is there to be known and to be studied and to be understood. But nothing in that so far required them too much to stand. But this required a stand. They've simply got to refuse the food that's on the king's table. Now, for a while, they may simply not have eaten it. But there's no alternative on offer. And a decision has to be made at some point. I mean, there's very little, maybe, that that they could eat. Very, very little. And for three years, they can't go on like that. Something has to be done. They have to make a stand. And that's what every teenager hates, is it not? I mean... Teenagers love conformity. They love to be accepted in a group. It's very important that they're accepted in a group. And the hardest thing in the world is to stand as a teenager. I mean, I'll tell you the truth. It's far easier to stand out different when you're a bit older. Even when you're 30, it's easier still when you're 40, easier still when you're 50. In fact, when you get older, you just want to stand out altogether all the time. But when you're a teenager, you don't. You don't. And there's huge pressure on them simply to conform. Unless, of course, you have the strength to be a trendsetter rather than a mere follower of other people's trends. I'm sure you've thought about trends from time to time. Somebody has to wear their hair a bit longer first. Somebody has to wear a new garment first because it becomes accepted. The reason they do it is because they have some kind of status and they can get away with being the trendsetter. But you must have the strength of character and purpose as a young man or a young woman just to be what you ought to be, period. Never mind what other people think. By the grace of God, who knows who that may win around, but you've got to have that strength of character. Don't don't be a sheep, really, honestly. Just don't blindly follow the crowd. I'll say more about that, God willing, next Lord's Day. But there's genuine pressure from peers, and I know that. I've been there myself. We've all known that. It's real, but the point is it was real for Daniel too. Very real for Daniel. There was also the pressure from their tutors. Uh, Their heads were on the block. Make no mistake. They were responsible for the education and the physical appearance of these people. You'll notice how panicky he is about how they're going to appear. You see, Uh, Babylon then, like Babylon now, is obsessed with the body, obsessed with the human form. These young men were to be good-looking, remember? They were to have no blemish in themselves physically. And this tutor is terrified that uh, they just don't look good. They just don't look good. Now, um, why are they terrified? Well, have you noticed the price of failure in Babylon? Um, in Daniel chapter 2, we'll, we'll see it, of course, when it comes up. When the uh, leaders in government couldn't tell Nebuchadnezzar the dream that he had dreamt, uh, the punishment was that they would be torn apart limb from limb. Now, you read that, but think about it for a second. Their limbs are hacked off one by one while they're still alive. Uh, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego failed to bow down to the image in chapter 3, they are thrown into a fire. Daniel is thrown into a den of ravenous lions in chapter 6. Take your pick of tortures. None of them are pleasant. 
These kings ended up dealing very harshly with people who fell foul of them. So the tutors' heads are on the block, and there's pressure from the tutors to get these young men to eat what they're supposed to eat and study what they're supposed to study. And, of course, it's more difficult because we're told that very quickly Daniel had got into the favor and goodwill of the chief of eunuchs. A bit like Joseph was brought into the favor of Potiphar in Egypt. That's the kind of thing God can do. More about that later, too. But that makes it harder to take a stand, you see. If you know that your stand is not just going to make trouble for yourself and for your friends, but it's actually going to make trouble for people who have been good to you and kind to you and considerate to you, it's so much harder to take, is it not? Do you notice how pressurizing these circumstances are on Daniel and the young men? He's got no desire that his tutor should be fired, worse than fired, because of the stand that he's got to make before God. And that's a subtle pressure. And, of course, connected with that, there's the pressure of the consequences for themselves. Daniel knows it. I mean, in chapter 3, you'll see his three friends cast into a furnace. Daniel knows what's going to happen, probably, if he takes a stand. He asks for 10 days, you see, of pulse, a pulse diet, vegetables and water. Um, the reason for asking that is not so that he can backtrack after 10 days. He's not essentially saying, look, uh, let's have a 10-day test here. And if after 10 days I'm looking poor and my friends are looking poor, well, I'll take what's on the table. No, that's, that's not the arrangement. Not the arrangement at all. The arrangement is if God doesn't obviously help me here, I'm finished. But so be it. So be it. He just puts the matter into the Lord's hands. But make no mistake, he's facing a death. He's facing painful death. Okay, we need to understand that too. Pressure. Now, friends, our persecutions may be real enough. But we don't face these consequences, do we? I mean, honestly, which of you in university faces this? You don't. I'm not minimizing what you feel and the pressures that you have when you're asked to do something, to go to a dance or a nightclub or whatever, or to break the Sabbath by doing this, by playing football. Whatever. I'm not minimizing any of that. Not at all. It's all very real. It's all very difficult. But which one of you or which one of us is facing this? The writer to the Hebrews said that when he was writing to, the, to these early Christians who were being persecuted. He said to them, you have not yet resisted unto blood in your striving against sin. Others did. And of course, later he gives a long list of those who did. But he says, you haven't. And be thankful for that. Your life's at least not on the line. In connection with that, friends, you know, honestly, honestly, I mean, how little we do suffer for Christ anyway. How little we do, and how difficult we find it to contemplate suffering for Christ in a meaningful way. I think I've said before that the Western church admires martyrdom, but is not really prepared for it. We like to hear stories of people who are standing for Christ, um, 
today in many countries in the world at great cost to themselves. But we don't do martyrdom very well. If I even asked you all and asked myself just to carry a Bible with us from the car to the church, something that was openly and visibly a Bible, you might find it difficult. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. Of course, you can come without a Bible and take one from there. Of course, there's nothing wrong with that. The only point that I'm making is simply, might you find even that hard? Might you find it even difficult just to walk down the street visibly with a Bible in your hand? And you may, you may. And that's just the kind of thing that I'm saying. We, we, we don't really do persecution of any kind very well. So think about these young men and be rebuked, all of us, by these young men. There was real pressure. But you know, these temptations and pressures that I've mentioned so far are obvious ones. With the devil just surrounding them, going round them like a lion. But there are less obvious pressures too. Less obvious, but very real. The devil coming at you as a lion is one thing. Coming at you as a serpent is quite another Paul tells us that the devil can appear like an angel of light. And I've no doubt that he appeared to these young men as an angel of light too. Sometimes he can come to you not simply as an angel of light, as though he was good and wise, but he can come to you through well-meaning people, through well-meaning Christians, who can say the wrong thing to you and encourage you to do the wrong thing. And that's when it gets really perplexing. Uh, Jesus warned us about this when he warned us about putting a stumbling block in each other's way. You'll remember he rebuked Peter for being a stumbling block in his own way. Peter said to Christ that he was interpreting Scripture the wrong way, that the Messiah should not suffer and the Messiah should not die. And the Lord turned angrily with a righteous anger and he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, he said to him. You are a stumbling block to me. A reminder that good people, good men and good women can sometimes persuade us to do the wrong thing. Now I can imagine somebody coming up to Daniel. I can imagine one of the other young Jewish people coming up to Daniel and saying something like this. Daniel, this issue isn't really important enough, you know, to take a stand on. The situation we're confronting is too big, way too big. And what's on the king's table is too minuscule in comparison with the gigantic issues that we've got to deal with in Babylon. This isn't a place to plant your flag. It's not, as they say, a hill to die on. You can understand such a thing. <laughs> Maybe you might give that advice under the circumstances. After all, we're told that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego withstood this test, but how many others? You get this argument in various forms. <clears throat> One of the most common forms, you see, when you're being encouraged to do something that the Bible does not allow you to do, one of the most common forms is people will say, well, it's not a thing to fight for. It's not a salvation issue, as they say. It's not one of the big doctrines of the faith. So, I just fudge it. 
swallow it, move on. Some people will even trivialize it. They'll trivialize it. That person will come along and say to Daniel, not just, they won't just say, well, it's not important enough. They'll say something like, um, are, are you going to be killed over a piece of pork? They'll make the thing look as ridiculous and as trivial as possible. That's why when you take a stand on a certain issue that isn't uh, what they would call a salvation issue, they'll say something to you like, well, God's not going to judge you on that. He's not going to judge you on whether there's real wine in the Lord's Supper. or He's, he's not going to judge you about whether women are in the ministry. He's not going to judge churches on whether... Um, they sing hymns in worship, or he's not going to judge you on the basis of whether you play football on the Lord's Day. He's not going to ask you what denomination you're in, and so on, and so on, and so on. There's a whole host of these things, you see. Now, whenever you hear someone saying, God's not going to ask you on the Day of Judgment, did you do this, or God's not going to ask you to do that, just be on the alert. You know fine that there's a, a silly argument coming along. Why is it silly? Well, it's silly for two reasons. First of all, it's silly because all of us are judged on the basis of everything we think and say and do, period. Everything we think and say and do must be taken to the judgment seat of God. Jesus himself said that for every idle word men speak, they shall give account thereof on the day of judgment. In other words, it's this total package of what you think and say and do, that is the total package that will be assessed on that day of judgment. And that total package will reveal whether there is real love for God there or not. If your total package consists of vain thoughts, if it has idle words, and if it's characterized by works of unfaithfulness to Christ— then a mere profession of Lord, Lord won't do, you see. It won't do. The life and the lip must match. The life and the lips must match. That's why in Matthew 25, when we have the great judgment where Christ is separating the sheep from the goats, you'll notice that when he addresses the, the sheep, what he says to them is this. Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For, what's the basis? Does he say, because you believed on me? No, that's not what he says at all. He says, because I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you showed me hospitality. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me, and I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous say, when did we do that for you? And he said, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Works. Yeah? Works. All these are works. They are judged on the basis of works. Now, as sure as good Reformed Protestants, you'll put up your hands in horror and say, well, surely we're not judged by works. But you have to be honest to the Scripture. Yes, you are judged on the basis of your works. 
and your works will be either in harmony with your profession or they will belie your profession. Let me put that another way. If you have genuine faith in Christ, your works will reveal that. If you don't, your works will reveal that. After all, look at the people who are being told to go into the everlasting fire in verse 41. Depart from me into the everlasting fire. For, does he say, you did not believe the gospel? No, he says, because I was hungry and you didn't give me food. I was thirsty and you didn't give me drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Inasmuch as you didn't do that for the least of my brethren, he says, you failed to do it to me. Works. Works. We are judged on the basis of everything we think and say and do. And you say, well, that's a terrifying thought. Well, who said it wasn't? You say, well, surely I'm going to be judged on the basis of whether I have Christ as Savior or not. Absolutely. But that's revealed in the package, you see. That's revealed in the package. The best, if I can use a word like best, which isn't a good word, but the, let's say the finest Christian, the most devoted Christian in the world, will have a defective package of thoughts and words and deeds. But love for God will be inside that. And that love for God will be revealed in how I lived my life. Whether I respected the commandments of God, even the food laws, you see. And Daniel knows that even the food laws and how I deal with the food laws are revealing whether I really love my God or not, you see. That's the way a true Christian thinks. Because at the end of the day, you see, the real issue here is not even so much how we deal with the law as how we view the lawgiver and what our relationship to the lawgiver is. And sometimes it's in the smaller things that these things come out. Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments, Jesus said, and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of God. It's our attitude. I think I remember before taking an example of this from my own life. It's a very simple thing, but my own father could issue very different commands to me. For example, he, he could say, go to church on Sunday. Well, I, I would go to church. He might say something a lot smaller to me, like to, to go over the hill and take home a sack of peats. Well, I would go over the hill and take home a sack of peats. Now, I knew instinctively which of these two commands was most important. didn't have to think about it for a long time. I knew that it was far more important for me to go to church. But you see, I didn't have the option to say no to any of them. Why? Because it was my father's commandment. You see. And I didn't have the luxury of arranging my father's commandments on a scale of one to a hundred as to which one is most important. And eventually I might drop down low enough and say, right, I can, I, I can just forget that one. Why couldn't I do that? Because of my father, you see. The issue is not the magnitude of a command. The issue is, do I love my father? Do I love my father? And that's why every Christian comes to a Bible different from a Pharisee. The Pharisee will pick and choose. The Pharisee will tithe his herbs but he'll stumble at other things, usually what's inconvenient for himself. 
the Christian says, oh, how I love your law. And uh, the food laws might not be the big laws. They're not the big laws. I mean, let's be honest. They're not the big laws in the Bible. But they're God's laws. And God's people always respect God's laws, you see. And that's why Daniel just couldn't listen to anyone who said, look, Daniel, it's not important enough. I suppose even if you think of Adam in the Garden of Eden, which was the most important law that he conf con confronted in the Garden of Eden? Which, which one? Well, you could think of the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That was written in his heart. Don't worship God using a graven image. That was written in his heart. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. That was written on his heart. There was another commandment that said, don't eat the fruit of the tree. That sounds a lot lower than the rest. But he didn't have an option to break it. Because to break it is to reject the lawgiver, you see. That's the point. It's not the law that matters at the end of the day. It's the person who gave it. The person who gave it. You make sure that you value God's commandments, all of them, because he gave them. Don't waste your time rating them on a scale of 1 to 10. Just keep them. So you can almost hear the devil say, Daniel, it's not a hill to die on. There are bigger battles to fight. Wait till the deity of Christ is at stake or wait till the resurrection is at stake. So it's just not important enough. Another subtle argument is this. Daniel, it's actually counterproductive for you to take a stand on this issue. People will fall out of sympathy with you so far, they've probably admired the fact that you're a little different from themselves. But if, if you make eating a bit of pork a life and death issue, uh, you'll be reducing your great faith to the level of the petty and the trifling. And for that matter, if you just literally swallow it, if you just swallow it, think of where you might advance. Think of how you can really start to make effective change in Babylon from the inside. Then you'll be a real hero. What's a little pork in comparison with that? In other words, a very subtle counselor might say to Daniel, Daniel, have you ever thought that maybe God actually wants you to eat what's on the kid's table, on the king's table? You would never think that the devil would be so clever as to turn a commandment to do one thing into a commandment to do the opposite. But you've noticed how easily I did it there. Did I not? I really did it quite easily. Have you never thought that maybe in this circumstance, in this circumstance, it's God's will for you to take the food? Oh, with a little slate of hand, the devil can make evil good and he can make the darkness to be light. That's why he's called an angel of light. That's the kind of argument that makes a sportsman break the Sabbath because think of the wider witness and the wider influence. It's the kind of argument that makes the businessman close a shady deal. It's the kind of argument that makes an actor take a part that he or she ought not to take. It's the kind of argument that makes an ambitious company worker Keep a matter secret and covered 
that she ought to unravel because it might get her places where she could have a more powerful and more effective witness, where your profile is raised. Raised, yes, but what profile is left? It's hollow. You've become a spiritual prostitute, thinking that you are doing good. You've done the deed, and you've sold out. And when you sell out, the issue is not the size of the thing on which you sold out. It's the fact that you simply did. And the spirit of the compromise will consume you spiritually like a cancer. So I want you just to be aware, and I'm leaving you with this, of the pressures being felt by a young man of 17 or 18 years of age and his three friends. I'm sure they often discussed it. There was a while while they could get by with just maybe a scrap or two, but a stand had to be taken. We've seen the pressures. The question is, how do they respond? The answer, I'll reveal it to you just now, just for you to think about, is that he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. There's a lot in that. God willing, next time we'll look at it. Let's stand to call on God's name. Our gracious God, we pray for the heart to honor you at all times and to have respect graciously to all your commandments. Help us to keep them and to keep them humbly, to keep them considerately and courteously. Help us to show that it is a pleasure to keep them and not a bind or a grievance. Help us to bear them cheerfully, for your yoke is easy and your burden is light. We pray that all of us would be sensitive to the pressures that especially young people are under, and we realize that sometimes they may give way, even as we may all do. Help us to help them to recover and to re-strengthen. Help us to help them to begin again and take a stand We praise you that although one sin may truly lead to another, yet repentance, true and earnest repentance, can change that flow of direction and can enable us to be what we ought to have been. How blessed a thing repentance is. How wonderful and glorious the renewal of the Holy Spirit and the tender mercy of God. Strengthen our young men and women. In Jesus' name, amen. Our next, uh, sorry, our last singing in conclusion is Psalm 141 on page 435. And we sing to the tune Martyrdom. At verse 2, he compares this prayer to the uh, incense that rose up in the tabernacle into God's presence. As incense, let my prayer be directed in thine eyes, and the uplifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set, Lord. Now, notice here his 
resolution. This takes us to next time. We'll look at Daniel. But set, Lord, a watch before my mouth. Keep of my lips the door. My heart incline thou not unto the ills I should abhor. To practice wicked works with men that work iniquity. And with their delegates, my taste let me not satisfy. We'll sing these four stanzas. Let's stand and sing them. grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.